for those of you who may be visiting and those of you who just may be wandering, uh, not wandering in the sense of through the wilderness, but wondering, W-O-N-D-E-R, wondering about the lesson, what we're doing is going through the Bible in a contextual fashion that we've kind of put together, putting scriptures all together in ways that make sense so that you read through the whole Bible in a year, but you read through it like a book instead of uh, uh, reading through it in the order in which the church has assembled it throughout the ages. And so it's just a different way of looking at things. But there are about half of the Sunday school classes or life group classes through this church that are teaching this material that we've got. And I don't know how they all teach it. And so the material this week, there was a whole lot of stuff that we read. And so the written lesson itself has more than anybody can teach because different people will grab different portions for their life groups to teach out of, whatever they're best and most familiar with. But I figure you guys are the ultimate ground zero for this. So I'm just dumping it all on you. You get the whole handout. Most people don't even get the handout. You get the whole thing. I'll teach what I think is is best, most cogent for the next 40 minutes, but uh, 44 minutes. But you have the benefit of the whole rest of it. So if there's stuff I don't cover up here, you can read about it. If you've got questions about it, you can email uh, Pastor David at David. No. <clears throat> Shoot me an email. I may be slow returning those, and I apologize. I'm so slow on emails right now. But uh, those of you who are praying for me and, and our, my family during trial, thank you so much. One week down, five to go, and uh, we're, we're marching through in Dallas, and all is fine. Um, now, here's the question I want you to have in your brain. As we look at class today, the question is this, who are you and what difference does it make? If you look in a mirror and I Googled images to see, and and when I Googled images of mirror reflection, it's really fascinating what shows up on the internet. You have these middle-aged, dumpy-looking men like me who look in the mirror and see, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger at his peak, you know? And the, the, the graphic illustrational difference between the two is pretty profound. I didn't put that up there, but instead I just put a hand mirror because the question really is, who are you? And what difference does it make? Let me tell you why I want to look at this. We've got a passage out of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that we've read through in the week. And in addition to it, we've had supplemental readings. That passage covers from 1 Corinthians 6.12 through 15.58. Almost all of 1 Corinthians. Now, in the process of that, who are you and what difference does it make starts out with a key section in 1 Corinthians 6. Chapter, or verse 12. Let's go to the Elmo, let's crank it up, and let's get started looking at it. In the process of this passage, we have Paul writing to the church. This is a church where he'd spent, you'll recall, 18 months. It's a church where he uh, um, uh, uh, has a lot of concerns, and it's not the, we know from Paul's letter. 
that Paul has been corresponding already with this church. They've been writing uh, letters. Those of you who I see, uh, some of my nephews and my my kids over there, letters are what people did before email. (laughs) It took a little bit longer. Y'all might call it snail mail. Okay? But this has not just been one tweet back and forth. Paul and the Corinthians have sent substantive letters back and forth. And you'll see that, and it's important to understand that when we look at this passage in chapter 6, starting with verse 12. You'll see that the translators of the English Standard Version that I'm using have put quotation marks around this statement, all things are lawful for me. The reason they put those quotation marks around it is they believe that that's something Paul's quoting from a letter he received from the Corinthians. So the Corinthians wrote Paul with this great libertarian mindset, all things are lawful for me. Because the Christian, as Paul taught, is no longer under law, but under grace. Paul's response is, all things are lawful for me, so you write. But remember, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, the Corinthians love to say. Paul says, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, they wrote to Paul. And Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, we're out of context here. Why are they writing about food? One of the things the church struggled with, Corinth being a a big seaport, Corinth had temples up on the Acropolis, which is the city that's built up on the hilltop. And, And they had a temple to Apollo and they had a number of other buildings. And what people would do routinely is in the Agora, which is the market, They might be selling meat, but they don't really just have a bunch of butchers that sit around and butcher meat. The best butchers are up at the temples because they could take the animals to the temple, have the priest slay the animals. The priest would get a cut, literally. The priest would get a cut. That takes care of all of their temple service and temple duties and the animal would then be dedicated to the God by the priest, and then the owners of those animals would bring them down and sell them in the marketplace. So you want to go buy some meat, the odds are you're buying meat that's been dedicated to some pagan God. And there's a big frustration in the church because they've divided into camps over whether or not it's okay to eat that meat. And so you've got some Christians who are saying, hey, food's meant for the stomach. The stomach's meant for food. Doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. Paul says, God's going to destroy both one and the other. And that's a little cryptic, but it'll make some more sense if we keep reading. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Another thing that happened at these temples is there would be a time of prostitution. And there were temple prostitutes. You would pay them money. And you would uh, 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 spend time with the prostitute. And in the process of that, do your pagan service to the gods. They had a god of love. And that's the way you show your love and devotion to the gods. That's one of those things that's clearly a creation of men. I mean, this, this, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating to look at religious development historically and to see how many things have arisen in the name of religion that just really seem to fit the, the, the base human desires. But Paul says, don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Am I going to take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Of course, a Christian's not going to go do that. Don't you know that who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it's written, the two will become one flesh. He who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. By the way, I got to time out here for a moment. You know, there are lots of sins where Paul says to stand and resist the devil. Stand against the devil. Stand and resist the devil. Sexual or immorality is about the only one I can find where he doesn't say stand and resist. He says flee. You turn around and run. Don't sit there and think, oh, I'll just stand and resist this. <laughs> turn around and run. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. What's the question we're asking? Who are you and what difference does it make? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now if we go back to the Elmo, I mean to the PowerPoint, please. So you're not your own. Now when you talk about your body being a temple... Uh, I'm, 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 we know that there's the temple of Apollo. These are the ruins of it in Corinth. But those that were Jews, even if they hadn't been there, would at least know about the Jerusalem temple. Temple was a concept that was much more prominent in that day than it is ours. The Greeks would frequently build their temples around certain holy sites where they thought the God had visited. There's a temple in, in uh, uh, Ephesus at the time, one of the world's most famous temples, because a meteorite had come down 
and landed there. And they thought it was a visit from the gods. So they built a temple around the meteorite. They have the oracle at Delphi, where they thought that, that uh, the gods spoke. And so you had a cult built up around that and a temple. These temples get built where they think God makes a visit. Now, it's a little bit different with the temple in Jerusalem, but the Jews also went through, you know, the, sometimes we have a tendency to think that the Jews had perfect theology simply because we're reading about them in God's Holy Scripture. But if you read God's Holy Scripture, you'll see their theology was horrible. It was all messed up. They went through massive periods of times where they thought God had a wife and a consort and they're worshiping with Asherah poles and they're doing all sorts of outlandish things. Solomon builds the first temple and part of our contextual reading for this was 1 Kings chapter 8. And we're going to get to 1 Kings chapter 8 in a minute. But Solomon's perspective was good even as the peoples were bad. Uh, uh, at least at times. So go to 1 Kings chapter 8 for a moment and let's look at what happened when Solomon built and dedicated the temple. 1 Kings chapter 8. Solomon, you'll recall David wanted to build the temple, but David wasn't allowed to build the temple. And we talk about temples being built on holy sites. The temple of Jerusalem was built on the threshing floor of Aruna, where not only a plague was stopped, but as scripture unfolds, it seems it's also likely the site where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. So Solomon assembles the elders of Israel. He assembles all the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before the king uh, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all of the men gather together, and all of the people gather together, and they all have a, a big procession as the Ark is brought up. And uh, uh, as that happens, Solomon begins a blessing of the Lord in verse 12. Solomon said, the Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness, but I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Now Solomon's not confused and thinking that God's actually going to dwell in a home built by hands, and he'll go on to say that. He gives a prayer of dedication, starting in verse 22, where Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, O Lord God of Israel, there's no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. He continues, verse 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes 
may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you've said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. Now, in Hebrew, Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the name of God, Hashem, the name, was used as an expression to speak about God's activity on earth. It was used as an expression to speak about his spirit working on earth. So, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer where it prays, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's a reference in the Hebrew concept from Jesus to the, the, the reputation, the work, the ministry of God on earth being declared holy, being declared hallowed. It's not a, a magic associated with a label. We tend to think of names as labels. They weren't simply labels. They were so much more than that. That's why in ancient times, they would change your name if it didn't fit your deeds and your works and who you were. And so for the name of God to dwell there in the temple, what Solomon's saying is not simply let it be a label on the door, but he's saying, let this from this temple, may your works emanate forth. May who you are and your works in, in the earth, may the hand of God extended among people start here and, and ripple out. Let this be a stone that, that's thrown in the water that causes ripples to go throughout. Let people come to you here to seek your name and to seek what you do and to seek your reputation, to seek your spirit. Because you're the God who's done these wonderful things before and we know you will do these wonderful things again. You're a God who keeps covenant. You're a God unlike all other gods. You're a God whose name, whose activity, whose function, whose real working, whose spirit is alive and vibrant and changing our world. Now that's the temple. Go back to Paul. Paul says, don't you know, you and your body is a temple of God. The name of God, the spirit of God dwells within you. There are some things I want God to do. I don't know about you, but I have a to-do list for the Lord. I'm not being funny. I truly do. I have a to-do list for the Lord. I ask him about it every day. Lord, I'd like you to do this. I'd like you to do this and this and this and this and this. I look out, I see among all of you, many of you have been on my to-do list for the Lord. And I tell you, if there is something that you need God for in your life, I count it an honor if you would email me and say, Mark, would you please pray for me? I count it an honor. And I put you on my to-do list for the Lord. But Paul says that we're the temple of God. 
and his spirit dwells within us. So if God's got a to-do list, who's going to do it for him? We are. So we spend our life. Who are you? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God. The spirit of God's within you. The name of God dwells within you. His spirit, what he's about, his work, you are his hands. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his mouth. When Coach Bowman coaches his football team, the effect he has on those players is one where the name of God should be hallowed. Should be declared holy and righteous. When Dean Simons works through his law school and tries to figure out the direction the school needs to take. And how to work through the institute of faith and law. His goal, his mission needs to be one of how does God work through this? That's, yeah, we need a lot of godly lawyers. (laughs) Um, um, uh, And and I don't say that like I'm some holier than thou. I need to be more godly too, okay? I'll leave that line. But but I'm just saying that everything we're about, that's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, hey, what are you doing out here? Hey, I can do anything I want. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful. I can eat anything I want. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to worry about that. I am free and easy. He says, you got the wrong mindset. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You are the temple of God. God dwells within you in his spirit. So when God's going to do something, hello, where are we? Lord, may your spirit Go speak the truth of Jesus and bring salvation to a John Smith. Okay, great. Spirit's ready to do it. And the Spirit's living in you. So go speak salvation in the name of God to John Smith. You got to be real careful with our to-do lists. Because sometimes our to-do list is... God, here are all these things I'd like you to do. And I really don't want to do any of them myself. So can you find someone else to do? I mean, it really means a lot to me. Just not enough to where I'd do it myself. we got to be real careful here. And that's what Paul's talking about. Now, this passage can be used and misused in different ways. If we go back to the PowerPoint, please. Um, uh, I have a very good friend that, that I will not name because uh, he's not here, is he? I don't see him. So Dr. Bob, really good friend. <laughs> He's probably already in Dallas. We've got a witness. We've got to get ready to testify tomorrow. I said, i got to teach class first. I'll be there right after lunch. But, but uh, Dr. Bob may already be there. So Dr. Bob and I are at a buffet, and he's loading up his plate. I mean, his plate has got more food on it than you can imagine. I said to Dr. Bob, before you eat, I want you to think, my body is the temple of God. And he didn't miss a beat. He looked at me and he said, yeah, well, I'm thinking, should God have a small temple? (laughs) I love Dr. Bob. Uh, So I went back and got seconds too. I think he made a really good point. 
Um, all right, let's see. So what difference does it make? Well, it should change who we are. And in that regard, Paul launches into a set of things that I've put into your handouts, but I'm not going to address because I don't have time to. But it changes who you are at home. It changes who you are in your marriage. He says husbands and wives. It changes how you live together. Changes whether or not some people get married. Some people it's better not to be married. Some people it's better to be married. God calls different people to different places. Nobody's, this is not a list of holiness and oh, I'm on number four on the holy chain. I want to climb up to number three. I got to be careful. I don't want to drop down to number five. It's not that at all, but it's a recognition that you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body because his spirit's within you. And it makes a difference in how you eat. Paul says, you know, there aren't other gods. I'm not going to take my meat to the temple and sacrifice the meat. Because then you're worshiping a demon, whether you realize it or not. But if I just go buy some meat and I don't know if it's been butchered where, how, when, or whatever, I'm not going to worry about it unless it's offending someone. If I've got some, if I'm having someone over for dinner and I know that they think it's really wrong to eat meat if you haven't made sure it was done kosher, then I'm either going to have kosher food for them or I'm not going to have any at all. Because I don't want to offend someone else. My, this isn't about my rights. My life is not about my rights. I am not my own. I've been bought with a price. I'm going to glorify God. Paul says, I'd rather be a vegan than offend someone over food. Now, that means a lot to me because our son, God bless him, is a vegan. Um, do you understand the difference between a vegan and a vegetarian? All right. There are these chains of people. There are pescatarians that will only eat fish. There are vegetarians that won't eat any meat, even fish. Then there are vegans. They're not going to eat meat or meat byproducts. No cheese, no dairy, no eggs, no milk, no... I mean, you're just basically eating like a rabbit. <laughs> now, our son is set to get married next Saturday. Jared will be teaching for me next Sunday. Thank you, Jared. I hate being gone, but we'll be in Vancouver for the wedding. And so I'll leave trial, go to Vancouver, and then go right back to trial from Vancouver. I'll hate not being here next Sunday. But thank you, Jared, for filling in. Will's marrying a woman who honors his veganism, and she's gluten-free. <laughs> and Becky's been putting together the rehearsal dinner. <laughs> and the only consolation we can get is how much fun we're going to have as grandparents. Hey, kid, come stay with me. Want a Snickers bar? Here, have some gluten. This is a steak. It's really good. 
Paul says, I'd rather eat gluten-free vegan food than upset and offend someone in the name of the Lord because this isn't about me and my rights. Don't write me this letter saying, hey, I can do anything I want. All things are lawful for me. Don't write me this letter about, hey, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach's meant for food. The Your body is the temple. God dwells within you. That's who you are. Let it affect what you do. Paul says it affects it in social interactions. The Corinthians seem to have a little class system. And if you ever break down and and read, and I've got in some of the old lessons I've taught uh, um, uh, some descriptions of, of how the houses were built back then. Because the community of believers would have these social gatherings, these feasts, as part of their, their, their fellowship. And out of that would come the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion, however you choose to call it. But in the process of that, they were very cliquish. And the, 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 the elites would have their own little group with their own bunch of food. And if you weren't part of the elites, you didn't get to sit in the good part of the house to do the eating. And, and, and actually, they were almost done by the time you got there anyway. It, it just wasn't a good social scene of unity in the Lord. These people clearly, you got to remember, this is at a time where the Gospels had not been written and spread around. There were parts of, of Matthew had good notes and people had good concepts and, 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 and the conversations are out there and there may be some early sections that the gospel writers are putting together. Don't get me wrong, but we're in the fifties at this point. And so the people weren't inundated and brought up with the scene of Jesus washing the disciples feet. Of reading that the first will be last and the last will be first. Of hearing the parable about when you go to the wedding, don't go take the seat of honor. But take the back row seat. Be the opposite of Bob Euchre. They didn't grow up with that. So it's real foreign to them. So Paul has to address that, and he addresses that with social interactions, and he addresses it specifically and says, you know, the sad part is this is even a problem when you come together for the Lord's Supper. And you need to change the way you're doing things. And he moves into worship and talks about the way they were worshiping. And he talks in the process of worship specifically about the Eucharist and what's going on with the Eucharist and how Christ blessed the bread and how Christ blessed the the cup and what it means to us and what we should be doing and how we should unite. And these are the things he does. And then he breaks in and he starts talking about the different gifts that God has given people to minister within the church. Think about those gifts in light of your body being a temple. Some have a gift of speaking. Some have a gift of encouragement. Some have a gift, gift of, of, of service. Some have a gift of giving. Some have lots of gifts. The way Paul lists them, and we include it in the contextual readings, also is lists from Romans 12. But the way Paul lists the gifts, it's not exclusive. It's not, okay, there are 17 different kinds of gifts. Which one am I? You'll find yourself in those 17, probably in multiple ones. 
But there are more. What Paul's driving at is God has created in you a unique gift set to service his body and his kingdom. Because we are his temple. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price and we're to glorify God in our body. So in the process of the gifts, some people wanted some gifts that they didn't have. Some Look, i got a list of ones I'd love to have. I'm telling you, I've told you before, I'll tell you again, it would be so stinking cool to have the gift of healing. I, I, I think it'd be cool to do it like the guys do it on TV. <laughs> Hail! Add six syllables to the name Jesus. Jesus! I don't have that gift. I'm not sure those guys on TV do either. Don't get me wrong. But I know the Lord has that gift. And I know he can heal. And I got some fantastic doctors. Steve's told me repeatedly stories. He keeps telling his doctor that he goes to his doctors helped him immensely. Keeps saying, I don't know if you know this or not, but God's using you to heal me. God can work through Moses' stick. He can work through the mule, Balaam's mule. God can do, he's God. He doesn't even need a stick. He can speak and it's done. So I don't mean to make light of God. I'm just telling you, I don't have that gift. But I'll tell you what Paul says. He says, there's actually really good news on the gift front. There's one gift that is the coolest, best, number one gift of all. And it's the one everyone can have. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the gift of love. That's the greatest gift. And so if we go and we look now, we've made it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Though not in any great detail, I'll grant you. But you can read your lesson and get more detail. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I nearly got fired one time over this chapter. I really did. I nearly got fired. I was working at a law firm. Uh, 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 I was a defense attorney where I was defending uh, this company. And I was working for a partner. And the partner had, uh, I had done all the work getting the case ready. But I was a baby lawyer. I'd only been out of law school a couple of years. And uh, there was this very formidable plaintiff's attorney. One of the best I've ever seen in my life. And he represented Ona Mae Clute's family. Ona Mae Clute had died. And she had left behind a 22-year-old son who was um, uh, living in a state school at that point and, and had severe uh, 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 physical challenges and mental challenges um, developmentally. And, and, and it was a really tough case. His name was Kerry Clute. And Ernest was uh, uh, giving his closing argument and now as the young lawyer, and, and my lawyer friends can tell you, you, my job was to carry the briefcase and to try to figure out how to tell the partner how to win the case. But I sat there for the two-week trial, and I did, never said anything. I, I was too young to, to, you know, this was major litigation, okay? And uh, the, 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 the plaintiff's lawyer, Ernest, uh, stood in front of the jury in closing argument, and he worked through the liability portion, in other words, why should he win? And he'd gotten to the damage portion, which is how much should the jury award? 
And he told him, he said, you know, we're a small community here. And eight of you went to church with, with Ona Mae Clute when she was alive. And Ona Mae Clute was not a wealthy woman. She wasn't a million-dollar banker. She wasn't some big lawyer. She was just a woman who loved her son. So you got to decide, is, is love, godly love, worth as much or more as somebody who's got a fat paycheck? And then he turns around and he points at me. And he says, see that boy over there with the glasses? And I'm just like, he says, that's my Sunday school teacher. Because Ernest was in the class I taught at the time. And Ernest picks up a Bible and he says, Mark, you and everybody in this courtroom knows I'm not very good at living by this book. But that doesn't change the fact it's the word of the Lord. If I wanted to read to the jury about love from the Bible, where should I turn? I'm sitting there thinking, I'm fired. <laughs> I'm fired. I answer this question, partner, case is over. You're fired. I don't answer the question, partner, case is over. You're fired. They didn't teach me this at my law school, Dean Simons. How to answer that question. So I just meekly said, uh, Ernest, I'd turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a... Yeah, this is what I was looking for, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> and proceeds to read through. I nearly got fired. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging cymbals. See, this is in the context of gifts. You want the gifts of tongues? That's nothing compared to love. If I have prophetic powers, you want the gift of prophecy. If I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, you want the gift of knowledge, the gift of wisdom, of insight. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, you want this supernatural faith ability to transform the world. If those are the gifts you want, just know, if I have all of that, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I have the gift of giving, if I give away everything I have, if I have the gift of service, if I sacrifice and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. And we got to pause for a moment. I think you're all Greek scholars, but I want to make sure. Love. Agape. Whoops. Love. Agape. English. Agape. As we would say in Lubbock. Agape in Greek. Agape. So if I have Agape love. See, the Greeks had a bunch of words for love. They had this other word called eros. E-R-O-S. We get the word erotic from it. Eros is a, is a love that brings me personal pleasure. Eros is a love that, that, that makes me feel good about the world and life. 
They had another word for love, phileo, which is, is um, uh, well, English, phileo. We get Philadelphia from it. Seriously, it's the city of brotherly love. Delphos, Greek for city, phileo. Phileo means a brotherly love. It's, uh, you know, hey, I love you, man. All right, this is my bud. It's brotherly love. Paul's writing here, and the word he's using in the Greek is agape. Agape is the word where it says, hotheos agape estin. God is love. This is not a love that is me-centered. This is not a love rooted in my emotions. It's not a love rooted in my sensations, my senses. It's not a love rooted in me at all. It's a decision love that has decided to value and care for something not because of what I get out of it, but because it's a choice and a decision. That's the love Christ had for us. He died for our sins. What did he get out of that? Nothing. God doesn't love us because he needs our attention. He needs our devotion. He's an egomaniac who wants to be praised and worshipped by a bunch of little people he made. No. God created us because he loves us and to give to us. Greater love, agape, has nobody than to give their life for them. Same thing. This kind of love is patient. It's kind. Of course this kind of love doesn't envy. How could it? Could not boast. How could it? It's not arrogant. How could it be arrogant? How could it be rude? How could this type of love insist on its own way? By definition, this is agape love. It's not irritable. It's not resentful because it's not about me. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love Agape love never ends. You want prophecy? You want the gift of prophecy? It's going to pass away. You want to speak in tongues? That's going to cease. You want to know all the That's going to pass away. We know in part. We prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the teleos in the Greek, the mature, the ripe, when the day of Christ is here, and we are made one with him. The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We grew out of that. In the same way, right now, we see in a mirror dimly. At this stage in our lives, we don't see God's eternity. We see in a mirror dimly. But when the perfect comes, when eternity is here... We'll see face to face. I know in part now. 
but then I'll know fully, even as I've been fully known. That doesn't mean we're going to know everything. That means we're going to be full in our knowledge of, of who we are and what's going on. Here's what it means. Faith, hope, and love abide right now. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Whoops. The greatest of these is love. Because when the day of redemption comes, faith will be made sight. Hope will be fulfilled. But love will never fade away. Now, yes, praise the Lord. Okay, so with all of that, there's the real kind of love. It's the cross kind. Uh, uh, it's not just the all Valentine hearts. So um, who is Christ and what difference does he make? I don't have time to tell you, but that would have been if we had taken the time, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul says, I'm going to remind you of the good news, the gospel I preached to you, that Christ was died for your sins, was buried, resurrected on the third day, hundreds of witnesses to this, still alive, you can talk to them, it changed my life, Paul says, it changes your life, because just as he has been resurrected, we can be confident the same God will resurrect us one day. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. So we glorify God in our body, confident as we grow in love, we will come to see the fulfillment of eternity in his care. And with that, we have our key takeaways, our points for home. First, May God's, well, I didn't animate that too well, did I? It's been late. May God's presence affect my life. I want to be his temple. I want his spirit to affect who I am and what I do. I want his love to affect my life. And I want that gospel good news to affect who I am. I want to be who God has called me to be. And I hope that's where you are as well. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I ask you to bless my friends today. I ask you to bless them with your love. Father, we all need to grow in your love. We need that fruit of your spirit, love, agape, with all of the fruit it bears, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control, all of the things, Father, that flow from you are what we want and what we need. Lord, all we need is you. We proclaim that. We seek you. Would you bless us with your presence? In the most holy name of Jesus, amen. Thank you.